0: Walker is an emotional and primitive man. Do you remember when we met? Suddenly, we were together. Lee Marvin is Walker, the hunter and the hunted. Here we meet Walker.
1: He makes my
0: flesh crawl. What do you really want? I I really want my money. I want my 93 grand. I want my money. Even deserted Alcatraz Island is not immune to Walker's vengeance.
2: Man, Walker, a very destructive man. Why do you run around doing things like this?
0: Feel the blast of emotions at point-blank range. What
1: do you want from me, Walker? You're supposed to be dead.
0: Know the mental agony that overwhelms and consumes at point-blank range. Experience rapid-fire action at point-blank range. Things aren't done this way anymore, Walker.
2: Let's be reasonable.
0: Episode of Reconciliation. I'm your host John Diner. I'm David Munchak, and I'm Brent Hutchins. And this is the podcast that takes a look back at some of our favorite films from the 70s, 80s, and 90s, and actually sometimes the 60s, mm-hmm. uh, which is where we're where we're going today. But you know what? It's been it's been a great summer. We we've had a great summer. Uh, there's no there's no place I'd rather go on my summer vacation than Alcatraz. Mm-hmm. So welcome to Alcatraz August guys.
2: Hey, thank you. I oh never want to go on vacation with you.
0: <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, it's roomy. It's, um, well, it's not, Dust, comfortable. It's, dusty, it's dusty. There's plenty of cobwebs. There's lots of stories to be told, um, that there is. Yeah. So we're, we're going to Alcatraz all month long with a couple of episodes. And, uh, we are going to start with a classic film. And that that has a director and a lead lead actor that have not yet appeared on this show, hmm. which is uh, John Borman and Lee Marvin with 1967's Point Blank. Hmm. All right, all right. I
1: so, can't wait to get know, into this.
0: We don't we don't dive back into the 60s that often, but you know we're with with our summer trip to Alcatraz coming up. We thought it would be the the uh, perfect time to do that. And, and uh, we've got another one planned later this month. I'll let all of your imaginations just run wild with what that episode might be. But uh, let's talk about Point Blank. I mean, this is a classic uh, film right at the beginning of the Hollywood new wave. Um, I don't know if this is really categorized as part of that movement, but it you know, definitely has its 60s vibe But it's really a movie that's that's fascinating to me and very much, I think, forgotten in time. You don't hear much uh, really outside of film schools. You really don't hear much uh, spoken about with this one. Hmm. I mean, even in the 60s,
2: I don't think it was very like widely received. Right. So it it took a little time even even uh, for it to kind of catch an audience when it when it did get released
0: yeah it wasn't you know wasn't like a blockbuster hit and we'll talk about you know it's coming right off of the heels of the dirty dozen which was a much bigger movie you know studio movie for lee marvin but um there's a lot of interesting stuff that went into this one uh but really i think it's it's probably my favorite lee marvin lee marvin movie and one of john borman's most creative for sure of which he's had a wide variety of movies from from this to to deliverance to uh the exorcist to to hell in the pacific and and uh uh excalibur you know he's had his career has kind of been all over the place but um this is a really interesting one have you guys uh have you guys seen this one or is this a first time watch david what about you
1: uh no surprise here that this is a first timer for me um I don't even know how aware of this, uh, uh, how aware I was of this film, but, um, uh, yeah. So this was this was a new adventure for me to. I, you know, I don't even know if I've seen any Lee Marvin films. I must have. No, I must. Wow, you've probably seen the dirty dozen, dozen, right? The dirty dozen. I've seen some of uh... Delta Force. Delta Force. Yeah. No. Oh. We must change that soon. Yeah. So you know, this was backyard uh, screening number two coming up. There you go. Um, so yeah, no, this was this was me this is me diving into to some new stuff.
0: Um, yeah, Brent, what about you? Did you catch this uh, prior to this this uh, discussion? You,
2: you know, I don't think I had. I was aware of it because I, I think, and you can you can definitely you'll you'll be able to tell me if I'm right about this, but I believe that this did play at our at the screen when we were in college, right? And so I was aware of it. I I, I remember you know, it, it being around, but I hadn't seen it until just recently. And I wish, I wish I had seen it for the first time at the screen when we were in college and not this viewing now. Cause I think I probably would have, uh, it would have resonated with me better. Like this time, like it didn't really land for a couple different reasons, which I'm sure we'll talk about, but, but, uh, I think if I'd have seen it in college, I would have liked it a lot more. I probably would have had a couple of beers, probably would have been with friends, would have seen it 35 millimeter print, which is always a great way to see uh, film. And so uh, I wish I had
0: experienced it there. Yeah, well, you are 100 percent correct. Uh, And that's where I actually saw it for the first time. I don't think I really I think I if. Didn't hit my radar till we got to college, and I saw in you know some some interview segment probably with John Borman where, where they showed a clip of of the movie and, and it's the clip of of Lee Marvin walking down the the airport terminal where he, yeah. his footsteps are just going and going and, and overlaying over everything, which is one of my favorite scenes in the movie. But that was the first time it kind of dawned on me. I'm like, oh, I like I knew of Lee Marvin from the Dirty Dozen and a couple of other things. But it was like this is this looks fascinating. This is a whole like other side of him that I didn't know about. But yes, we did screen it at the, at the screen, which was the movie yeah. theater on campus. And and I think I was I think I, I want to say I was managing at the time because we we played it. I remember playing like on a weeknight and I was uh, I was I think I was actually off the clock and I was going to go meet up with you guys, wherever mm-hmm. everyone was hanging out, and I was like, "No, nah, let me, you know, let me just stay and check this out." Like it's been on my list. There's, you know, it's like seven o'clock at night, so it's not like anything crazy fun is happening yet, right? And I stayed in the theater and watched it on the big screen, and it and it blew my mind. It, it's the kind of movie that does make a difference seeing it on the big screen versus watching it at home. Yeah, um, you I'm know, sure. so on that large larger scale, it has such an impact that you just there's a lot of movies that are like that that are made to see in a theater and and when you see it at home it just doesn't have the same experience um so i i saw it and i was i was completely sucked into the movie i was just totally absorbed and the movie went by it felt like 5 minutes and the movie was over and uh yeah, you know, and then I I it became fascinated with Los Angeles, seeing the this various scenery. You know, the LA River Basin, and within a few months, then I had moved out there and like was also working on a show that shot in all those same places. Hmm. But uh, yeah, really, really fascinating for me. I I loved it when I first saw it, and um, you know, I'm still a fan of it now. Although I can see. I can see why it would be difficult to kind of latch onto it from today's perspective, but.
2: Yeah. I mean, it's kind of an interesting, you know, I mean, just the filmmaking approach in general, you know, has evolved so much since this movie was made and a lot of the decisions in this movie, like, I just don't think hold up as well, or, or they've, they've found maybe ways that, make i don't know more logical sense to do to do mm-hmm. things like staging and stuff like that i mean there, there's a whole scene at the beginning where like lee marvin and john vernon are right they're like mm-hmm. on the floor rolling around having a conversation yeah. and it's like super strange and like doesn't make a lot of sense to me as to why they're down there and yeah why this whole thing is kind of happening the way it does And I know that there's like creative intent behind all of it, but I just feel like it didn't, it doesn't really translate if you're watching it in, you know, 2022, uh, you know, the same way that it would if you were watching it in the 60s. And, uh, you know, I mean, I just think that it was kind of a little strange. Des- there are a few different strange decisions throughout the movie similar to that, that really like, unfortunately pulled me out of it throughout the course of of watching it I mean there are some amazing stuff in there you talk about the scene where where Lee Marvin's walking down the hall I think if anybody hasn't seen it but maybe seen a clip somewhere like that's probably the clip they've seen it's probably the most iconic you know like kind of scene uh, that I think would stand out to to people and get reused other places like that's a cool scene like the sound design and what's going on there it's 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 pretty neat but there are other things throughout that i'm just like ah what like what is so strange it's such a strange decision
0: yeah well 60s movies in general they're so we've talked about it before every decade has their style of filmmaking right 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 and the 60s in particular are so stylized because it's so drastic of a change the late 60s into the early 70s of staging the dialogue, physicality between people is a little awkward, and then you've got your your zoom in your 60s zooms. Yep, yep. Um, of which I think this has a few. It's not overkill in this. It one, does. It has. has
2: swan yeah. on the beach right before they dive into the water, and yeah. I'm like, I'm like, it's so weird. Like it's such a <laughs> random. That's. I don't mean. I don't want to. It's. It, that was random too. I was just like, okay, all right. Yeah,
0: I I think, and that's kind of what I was referring to earlier with you know, this movie being a harder pill to swallow, I think for modern audiences, because it's got that, that style is so, so different from today. You know, I recently watched the Thomas crown affair, the original and original. Yeah. That one is, I mean, I'm fine with sixties movies, but that one was very intense with this sixties isms. Yeah. Yeah. Just visually. Yeah. But, David, what did, what did you think? Did the, the visuals of of the film, did that kind of bump you? Or what did you think?
1: Uh, no, I mean, you know, it's a, it's a little trippy kind of or, you know, just a little surprising. I'm not used to the really the vocabulary of these 60s films. So it's to me, it's like, oh, OK, yeah, these are some interesting choices. And they don't make sense until you like finish the entire film. I think if you're not used to it, like because you don't know if like you're just seeing random shit or if there's a consistency to it or you know a a cohesion between even though it's like meant to sort of keep you keep you thinking different things because it's like it's there's essentially a linear story but there's these odd like you know asides and flashbacks and things that you don't and i and then it takes on like a surreal quality so i'm like i didn't know if he was imagining certain things at, at a certain point or like if if you know, this is all just a replay in his head. It's all a memory. Like, mm-hmm. you know, I'm not sure what I'm supposed to think, you know, uh, about the whole thing. Uh, but I that's what I uh, I thought was interesting. Like, I, I was like particularly confused where after he, after she, after uh Lynn dies and, uh and then he's in the house and the house gets emptier and emptier, but then he's in the house. And then you see when he confronts the guy, you know, Whatever, how many, however many days later, with the, with the delivery, the house is fully furnished. So I'm like, wait. So what? At what point did all this stuff happen? And is he mourning her at, at the end of the story? Is he uh like, did he take care of her affairs like after it was all said and done? Or you know, when did it? You know, I was confused. Like, mm-hmm, right? not that it didn't, but it didn't take me out of the story or anything. I think like, I I like the the idea that it's, you know, you're not necessarily like he's gone through a. He got. He went through a super specific trauma and we're kind of just traumatized with him. Like, you know, nothing, things don't necessarily make sense. Mm-hmm. And then now he's just this like brutal, uh, this brutal guy. And you don't really know anything about what his life was other than he was in love with, yeah. with her and that he's willing to sort of be a criminal.
0: And then maybe um, he was some kind of sailor.
1: Right. At some yeah. Point.
0: Right yeah with him the the, sailor or, maybe the weirdest yeah. scene in the movie for me yeah
2: or he or he likes to hang out on docks with a bunch <laughs> of other sailor type guys yeah. Yeah. surrounding young women that and was just weird.
0: awkwardly <laughs> smiling <laughs> and smiling. standing too close and she seemed was, totally
2: fine with it like yeah. not alarmed at all yeah i
1: like i watched that t- twice specifically to just be like what's the what's the vibe there Cause they're like, if the other guys weren't there and if played with the right music, that actually would have been just sort of a beautiful little sure scene of just like flirting with eyes and body language only, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah, yeah. Other than, but then they had a crowd that were all on his yeah. side, and it was a weird. Six it was other- Six other
0: dudes making yeah. it
1: very off-putting.
0: Well, that and that's one of those weird things of the '60s that that's that, that's just symbolic of his courtship of her, right? That's not it. All didn't happen in one moment like that. It's right, just right. representing, you know, where for some, you know, it, it happened in that area. It probably happened over time that mm-hmm. he was able to, you know, separate her from everybody else. So, yeah. Um Yeah, this is there's so many interesting things about this one.
1: Hey, that's my last name.
0: What's my first name? Let's talk about Lee Marvin in general, because I think when you understand his background, this movie gets a lot more interesting based on what his life experiences were to this point. And he's an extremely fascinating guy Uh, for those, you know, modern listeners who maybe don't know who lee marvin is lee marvin was a one of the legendary um hollywood tough guys out of uh, out of the 50s and 60s really that he was a you know he started as a as a more of a character actor and then became a lead but was always kind of what you see here in this movie is real tough guy clint eastwood type right A um telly Savalas kind of style charles bronson kind of dude and uh Um, was just, you know, Robert Mitchum is another guy who was a little bit earlier, maybe forties and fifties for Mitchum, but, but that kind of like a man, a quote unquote man's man. And, um, going, going back to his beginnings, he was, he was born in 1922 in, in Peekskill, New York, which was around the corner for me. Well, I wasn't, I wasn't around in 1922, but. We share a kinship there, so must sure. be why you're so tough, John. <laughs> exactly, yeah. That's where all the tough guys come from. Like, yeah, right. Peekskill, New York. That's that's it. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> but he was the he was a first cousin four times removed of General Robert E. Lee. Wow, oh. interesting. That's interesting. It, okay, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, he he got into hunting when he was young, and he was always kind of a troublemaker in school, uh, and was. I think he was expelled at one point, but there was always problems always kind of followed Lee or Lee, you know, found problems wherever he went. He joins the Marines in 1942 and he's a, he becomes a sniper in World War II. Now, he his job, he was the guy that they dropped behind enemy lines and he would scout and report back where they were. And then he would start taking people out on his route back to you know, the U S lines. Right.
2: That's intense, man. Like you've got to, you've got to be tough. You gotta,
0: you have to survive. You have to like, you're completely on your own. And uh, you know, that's, that's a crazy situation, but he was, uh, he was in, uh, he was in the attack on, on Mount, I'm not going to mispronounce this, but Topacho in Spain where his, almost his entire company was like slaughtered and he saw all of his friends get brutally, you know, anything in war is brutal and all sorts of, you know, grotesque killings happening all around him. He gets shot twice. First he gets shot in the sciatic nerve, severs his sciatic nerve, but he like keeps going, right? And then later he's shot again in the foot by another sniper. So he's shot twice Is one of just a few people who survived that attack. And, and was just, you know, obviously the trauma of all of that is going to affect you and, and you're going to have psychological, you know, as we've seen with a lot of people coming back from war, a lot of psychological issues. And now he's got a lot of physical issues that he's in mental anguish. He's in physical pain all the time. So he ends up by the time his military career is over, he's discharged as a as a private first class, he was a corporal in the war and he had been demoted because of all the trouble he constantly caused. Like he would, he would get drunk and get in fights and, and, you know, just get in, you know, stir up trouble wherever he went. He was, uh, extremely highly decorated. He won seven, he was given seven medals, uh, for his, uh, his service in in the war. And it's, like including the Purple Heart and Navy Com- Commendation Medal, Combat Action Ribbon, Presidential Unit Citation, American Campaign Medal, Asiatic Pacific Campaign Medal, and World War II Victory Medal. So, I mean, the dude's like loaded with yeah. you know, with honors, but yet he's, he's booted out as, as a private. Sounds like a lot of participation trophies today.
1: <laughs> Just yeah, kidding. My honor of the military. I have no problem. Just you know. <laughs> Just being an asshole. Sorry, thanks. David's David's trying to get us canceled. Yeah, yeah, cancel us. It's impossible. <laughs> I subtly try to just put in, you know, really <laughs> inflammatory things, and then hope hopefully someone on Twitter will discover it, cancel the show, and then I'm I, and then I'm out of my contract for the for this podcast. That's so,
0: that's what it's all about. David trying to get out of his deal. Yeah, yeah.
1: That's, I've been since day one
2: <laughs>
1: until well, I anybody's... got the
0: deal. I wanted it. Once I got the deal, I want it out.
1: <laughs> yeah.
2: Well, if anybody's listened to the podcast before, they know that John and I both have family members that serve in the military,
1: and that Absolutely. we respect them. Oh yeah, I'm sorry. I, you know, I was making a <laughs> a overtly that's my, terrible. That's my counter cancel. <laughs> <thing. laughs> there you go.
0: So now that he's back out of the military, what you know, a problem that a lot of you know post military, uh, you know service servicemen have is what are you going to do now? So he had kind of gotten into acting a little bit in his pre-war career. So he goes back to it. He gets involved in theater and, um, you know, TV throughout the, the, the very early part of the 50s. And he just starts working, you know, work in the system and and trying to get better parts and better parts. Uh, he by the end of the 50s, he and early 60s, he had, he'd actually shown up as a villain in three John Wayne movies. Uh, one of which is The Man Who Shot Liberty Valence, which is one of my all-time favorite Westerns. It's yeah, a yeah. fantastic film. So his name is starting he's starting to be more of a character actor that's known and um you know is getting himself established.
2: He's in The and Killers
0: it, too, right? Yeah, The Killers is a huge movie for him with uh with Ronald Reagan. Yeah. As the uh as the co-lead of that one that's both versions of the killers which i think is 19 i want to say it's like i think there's a version in the late 40s and then the early 60s I could be off on the years but there's two and they're both really interesting one's burt lancaster and one's lee marvin um hmm. so yeah, yeah the killers is a big movie and then he does cat Ballou, which is a musical really with with Jane Fonda and he wins an Oscar for it. So that's the movie that really makes him a star that he's you know he's established himself now he's boosted up to the A list. And then following that he does The Professionals which is a a western with Burt Lancaster and then The Dirty Dozen. So by 1967 or going into 66 really he's one of the top actors in Hollywood at the time. I mean there's still Probably John Wayne is still up there, but Paul Newman, Steve McQueen are right there. But Lee Marvin's, you know, right floating near the top. Right. And he, but all during this time, lots of problems with alcohol, lots of problems with his, uh, uh, the woman he was married to at the time. And just, you know, he would go out and just get like blackout drunk, like almost every night. And, but he was a professional, like he always showed up on set the next day and especially in the earlier part of his career knew his knew his lines and was was you know was on it but um yeah so that's so that's kind of where he's at at the same time let's talk about John Borman, the other you know driving force of this film uh John borman was in the British Army, but um I don't think he actually saw any active you know active duty he he did serve but not uh you know in in it would have been probably the Korean War for him. Um, he gets in the TV news and documentary filmmaking, and starts doing some some interesting films. That are starting to get noticed, but he does one documentary, which is base. It's called "Catch Us If You Can." It's basically a version of the of a Hard Day's Night, which was the Beatles' first film. Uh, but right. this is for the Dave Clark Five, and that gets him noticed by Pauline Kael, who was probably the number one film critic uh, of the '60s uh, with the New Yorker.
2: Anybody listen to any of the Dave Clark Five?
0: I have. Music? I have. I mean, I wouldn't say I'm a fan, like a huge fan or anything, but I have heard them. Are they a
2: pretty popular band? It's interesting to me that they... They were then, right?
0: They? they were then, yeah. Were In they? the 60s, yeah. 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 So, I mean, that movie wasn't as successful as A Hard Day's Night, but it was critically well-received. Yeah. So, you know, all these start, start to converge. Erwin Winkler, who is... Another iconic producer who did Goodfellas, Raging Bull, the Rocky movies—just it goes on and on and on. Uh, how many great films he produced! uh He starts developing the script, and it's based on a novel by Don Westlake called The Hunter. Have you guys read? It? You guys haven't read any of those, right? No, okay. I have not. It's a it's a series. The, the The character's name is Parker in the books. It's Walker in the movie, but it's. Parker in the novels, and it's like twenty four novels.
1: Nice, so a whole it's a series.
0: It's a whole series with this character that goes, you know, it's just sort of like case after case after case that he's gets himself wrapped up in. Um, so they're developing the script. He hires uh, Winkler hires John Borman um, based on Pauline Kale's kind words about him and and good reviews for him. So he goes out on a limb, hires this, this new kid, basically. And he's, you know, he's targeting Lee Marvin, and he's trying to make a deal with Lee. So he sends Borman to the set of the Dirty Dozen to, you know, basically get Lee to commit to it. And the interesting thing is when they do get together, Lee Marvin hates the script and John Borman goes, good, so do I. <laughs> and they threw the script out completely. Oh, wow! And they just, they, they formed a friendship that lasted for years and, you know, really just connected with each other. And Lee really needed at that point, needed a director he could trust. So uh, Lee negotiates that he gets full script approval, full cast approval, and he gets final cut of the movie. And then in a, Meeting with all the the studio executives and Winkler and everybody, he says right to them. He took the script that they had and he walked out and threw it out the window of this this meeting and then said, I'm signing over all of those rights to John Borman. So on John Borman's like second movie, he's got all the final approvals on everything. He's got complete creative control of the movie and there was basically nothing they could do about it.
1: That's amazing.
0: That's, that's a great that Hollywood story. story. Oh, my <laughs> God. It's a great story. So fascinating. Wow. So, you know, so I, I think just looking at Lee's life and knowing that context, seeing the movie, you know, seeing it maybe on your second viewing, it, it just puts it, I think, in a different place that you can understand why he would do a movie like this and why he would gravitate to such a rough character like this. Hmm. Yeah yeah because this guy's a brutal guy yeah yeah I mean even in the dirty dozen he's he's a tough guy but he's like he's got heart in that movie here he's just he's almost like a heartless killer you know every like nobody has a heart really in this one right No.
1: well Cinderella I was beginning to think you'd never come for your shoe
0: so, all right, so let's talk about just some of the rest of the cast. Um, it, Angie Dickinson is Chris in this film, and they had one after St- Stella Stevens, um, didn't work out with her, so they get Angie Dickinson, who also has a history with Lee Marvin. She, and was not a fan of him, because she co-starred in The Killers, and oh. Lee was pretty rough with her on that movie, and there's there a story of him, something about him, not like at work, but some kind of after work situation, things got out of hand and he ends up like holding her out a window, like dangling her, like a few stories up Jesus, uh, thinking, okay. I, I don't know, you know, it, what, what the real behind the scenes story was, but there was a if lot any, of,
2: if there's any truth to that, I can understand why she's not a big fan.
0: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so there's a lot of heat between, you know between like really angie towards lee lee right. you know angie dickinson was a huge star of of the 60s and was one of the top actresses of of the time and you know this uh the scene in the film where she attacks him like you can see she's really smacking him and that's a lot of sort of her taking out her aggressions from their prior uh, altercation on that scene, and and Lee was just taking it, you know, yeah. and, and apparently they did become really good friends after this film, and I think that probably helped, you know, mend uh, mend mend the bridges. Yeah,
1: that's that's good.
0: Yeah, so it's uh, it's so many interesting things going on with Lee here, and you know, he was younger and I think more wild here. He's a little bit older and still drinking quite a bit, but you know in a lot of ways he's he's kind of more tame than than he was 10 years prior right so um some of the other actors in this film we've got keenan Wynn, we've got carol o'connor we have got the great john vernon who i think yep. this was the yeah. first movie i had seen him in mm-hmm. um you know carol i think
2: O'Connor- i th- don't they even have something
0: introduced is it is it on the front of
2: this one? Yeah, Introducing gets, John Vernon.
0: I think he does. Yeah. I mean, he's oh,
2: wow. he'd been in some stuff prior to this. But yeah. I, think, I mean,
0: he's been on the show before with National Lampoon's Animal House. Yes, in yeah. fact, he has. And he's well, got which is that, probably
2: the role that he's most recognized for. Of would, course, Dean Wormer. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, or
0: maybe maybe uh, Killer Clowns from Outer Space could be also a classic. Yeah.
2: I know some of our listeners will respond well to that one.
0: Oh yeah uh but he's got that kind of commanding deep voice that that he also did a lot of you know voice over work and and yeah. I think had a, a huge career on that side of it as well but um I love John Vernon I, I think he's great he's uh fantastic in the outlaw Josie Wales if anyone hasn't seen that yep Clean Eastwood Western I'm not a big Clean Eastwood guy but that one I like a lot
1: let me tell you something about corporations Walker This is a corporation. I'm an officer in a corporation. We deal in millions. We never see cash. I got about
2: $11 in my pocket.
0: Carol O'Connor, who would, you know, later be an iconic television actor with All in the Family. Very different kind of role for him here. Uh, Keenan Wynn uh, was coming off of I mean he's been in a ton of westerns and uh, you know he was in dr strangelove also but once upon a time in the west he shows up in and later he would show up on an excellent television series called dallas Mm. brent's favorite show someone's
2: favorite (laughs) someone who didn't grow up in
0: texas (laughs) new yorkers who love shows about texas (laughs) where's his house we're here. this
1: is it. I said alone. Take it easy.
0: you'll last longer. And then we've got Sharon Acker who plays Lynn which is, is uh Walker's wife and part of the the love triangle here that's going on. Um, so you know good actors and and but none really superstar names besides Lee Marvin. Are you forgetting
1: Michael Bell? Right? Isn't he from? Uh, didn't, he G. didn't he do GI? Didn't he do GI Joe?
0: Is Michael Bell in this movie?
1: Michael Bell's in the movie. He plays one of the the dudes in the he's the, the second
0: penthouse lobby guard. Yeah, he's one. Oh, of, the lobby of course! Guys. How could you forget that
1: Duke himself? <laughs> and you 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 skipped right over
0: it. My my favorite GI Joe is in this movie. Yeah, they're all solid. Shut up! All, all Duke, the stars are here.
1: All all the stars came. Out. Sid Haig, right?
0: Sid Haig, yeah, you can actually. I mean, I did recognize him—the very different-looking Sid Haig yeah. from the horror movies. You know that that the bald, you know, goatee look that he had later yeah. on. Very different here, clean-shaven, full head of hair, much you know, smaller in stature.
1: And and James P. James B. Sicking, right? Isn't that yes. his
0: name? Yes. Yep. James B. Sicking, who is another guy who's in a million '80s and early '90s movies and TV shows and. Um, I th- what there was a series he was the dad on uh, Doogie Doogie Howser he was Doogie's dad yeah
1: he was Doctor yeah. Dr. Hauser. Dr. before Hauser. there was
0: the other Doctor. <laughs> <laughs> um, so they shot this movie. They only shot in Alcatraz for for two weeks. Um, and this is only three years after Alcatraz actually shut down. That's the craziest. Wow, thing yeah. So, so it's not like that far removed from it being an active prison.
1: Yeah and it was already a tourist attraction there must have been in the plans when i don't know anything about the history of alcatraz in terms of that era when they shut it down but i mean it became a tourist attraction already like within 3 years that's kind of grotesque yeah <laughs> well there was
2: yeah. right there's quite a fascination with alcatraz there was a lot of lore yeah yeah the birdman of alcatraz like mm-hmm. all that kind of stuff
0: yeah, yeah. i mean th- there has to be i mean it had to be creepy shooting in there like there's got to be there's gotta yeah. be some ghosts floating around there. There's gotta yeah, be ghosts. Gotta definitely. Be.
2: I like when they're on the boat going into the into the the prison. The tour guide on the on the ferry is talking about the convict that escaped. And I'm like, oh man, that's you just mentioned you're not a fan of, of Clint Eastwood, but dude, I love Escape from Alcatraz, which is that's, that story.
0: There okay, there are there are good Clint Eastwood movies. There's it, a lot of good Clint Eastwood of, movies, there is. John. I mean, I prefer Sorry, older John. stuff. When I say I'm not a Clint Eastwood <laughs> fan, it's like almost everything post Mystic River.
1: Oh.
2: Hey, well, Trouble is- with the Curve. I just watched that. That's
1: pretty <gasps> good. Hey, isn't Paint Your Wagon one of his? And that's Lee Marvin as well? Uh, or Lee Marvin was in
0: it? Yeah. I, I don't think I've ever seen Paint Your Wagon. but mm.
1: It's like a music. It's also a Clint Eastwood musical, right?
0: Yeah. yeah uh, yes. Yeah. But anyway. uh Damn, yeah, you, I don't. You guys like, mentioned Sid Haig, and it just connected
2: with me who Sid who Sid was. I was like, oh yeah, that. Oh yeah, that, you know him. Yeah, House of a Thousand Corpses, Devil's yep. Rejects. Yeah, oh, I, I recognize him. Yeah, twisted. I think fella. he just
0: passed uh, a year or two ago. But
2: yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that sounds right.
0: But you know, it's so you, you can't duplicate a location like like Alcatraz. There's something about its look. I mean, in any real prison you know, you you need to go there to really capture that energy. There's something about, it doesn't, it doesn't sell as well when it's, uh, you know, built on a stage, you can almost kind of tell that it's just not quite the real thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but this has that, you know, it's, it, it's authentic. It's got an authentic, really gritty look to it that, that they needed. And, you know, just, just as a reminder, in case anyone needs a little refresher on, on what, the plot of this movie is before we, we kind of get into those things. The Walker is part of a uh is is committing a robbery and there's a transaction that's going to take place on Alcatraz where the money's gonna change hands and um the deal is going to be made and he is turned on by his best friend Mal and his wife Lynn and he's shot and left for dead on Alcatraz. They leave him there and he we see him swimming away, uh and then we cut to however much time later, I think it's a year, maybe about a year they yeah. say later, yeah that he is back in San Francisco for revenge, and we follow him as he tries to get back his ninety three thousand dollars that was stolen from him and and avenge what happened to him, so that's the general plot of the movie, and uh yeah, I I just I think that Alcatraz is such a you know symbolically it's such a huge part of of the movie and and you can't duplicate that and there's you know a lot of great LA locations there's you know they shot at LAX with uh, the shot of like basically like Walker is is coming like that's his those footsteps those endless yeah. footsteps is that his relentless pursuit of vengeance that yeah overlays like we see him walking and we cut to other scenes but we keep hearing the footsteps over and it's just methodical pace that just never ends until he shows up and you know bursts through a room with, with a gun um but really great locations between that walkway and the LA river basin and just you know the apartment complexes and and the house you know the the rich house at the end uh, towards the end of the movie um just really good a really good job just setting the tone. Now, let's talk about what's going on kind of thematically in the film. Do you guys think Walker actually is alive?
2: Yes. I d- I do. And it wasn't until after seeing the movie and doing some research that I ran across the whole theories of him possibly being dead or in some sort of you know uh sickly state of after being shot or or whatever but i think that that's really interesting and it and it i think for me like makes the movie more interesting mm-hmm. if he's not mm-hmm. alive but i think
0: I th- he is i think any movie that has the um option of looking at it from that perspective of is is this is this story actually happening is it a dream is it a fantasy is it or is it real i think it's always something really cool that a cool aspect that certain movies have this being one of them what about you david did you did you kind of buy into that was it was it really happening or was this all a figment of his dying of a dying man's uh, vision
1: uh you know i i think i guess it's supposed to be An interpretation, right? But I mean, I'd like to think this all happened the way it played out. Um, But I think he he was having a a hard time existing through it. I mean, that's like I was like, maybe maybe he is alive, and then when he went to the house to find Lynn, maybe that's maybe that's it was empty to begin with, and maybe when we're seeing it empty, you know, so his fan maybe we're running through his fantasies while he's just running around trying to figure shit out, Mm -hmm. and you know, it's all it's all a fantasy in his head and um you know i I find that i do yeah to have that sort of thought uh, exercise about it um you know it really does up the sort of the the quality of of what you're watching and the 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 the, um the way the narrative is kind of playing out so i i yeah i you know I, i i would i would assume everything i'm seeing is happening uh as it played out you know but um we do get a peek inside his brain where he's he's reliving a lot of a lot of stuff. So, yeah, oh.
0: I, I mean, I tend to, I tend to think that it's really happening, but this last time I watched it, I definitely tried to put that lens on of that. He's a ghost of vengeance.
1: I just think it's like part of, part of it is if, if he was in every single scene, I could buy, like, you could actually say like, they were trying to be overt about it. And I know artistically you can't do that, but things happen where he's not around. So mm-hmm. not much.
0: Well but, it's kinda like maybe it's kinda like the Wraith. Remember the Wraith? Oh, Charlie Sheen, the Wraith? <laughs> that he is he is allowed back on this realm to seek vengeance. And whatever that means, whether it's killing eliminating everybody who wronged him, and then when that is done, he will be he will ascend to his next uh form, right? Maybe that's maybe that's happening here. Maybe there's a little of that. Yeah. Is the Wraith a movie that a lot of people saw? I don't. I feel like I, I bumped I into like, it with dumb luck. I feel like the Wraith kid. is um the number one movie of 1986. I feel like that was number one at the box office. Am I wrong on sure, that?
2: Did it even go to the box office?
0: <laughs> did it, <laughs> it even, even in theaters? Was it even? In the, but the Wraith is a completely fascinating movie. I love the Wraith. It's a yeah I early mean, I early Charlie Sheen.
2: It's got kind of a carry vibe to it kind of a, a little yeah, bit I mean,
0: yeah it's, it's interesting we should maybe we'll cover the wraith one day. or sorry the, not Carrie, christine christine is yeah it's yeah. probably the one that i'm um maybe we'll cover the wraith one day it, it's, it's in our wheelhouse yeah it is you know i huh. bet loves the wraith i bet i bet ek loves the wraith I, no let's doubt. let's give ek yeah. a
2: call and see if he wants to do another guest.
0: Oh yeah, we're we're already we're already our team our lawyers it's already, are it's, we're already in discussions. Great. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, Halloween's right around the corner, guys. So it's a good point. Yeah. Oh, it's uh, like anyway. a scary movie. Yeah, <laughs> he you likes mean- horror movies. Um, anyhow, yeah, I, I think uh, so. I was trying to watch it through that lens of of maybe he's not re- really alive. You know, he, he's alive in the context of what we're seeing, but. Maybe once he achieves his goal, he that's it. He's gonna be gone. And the, the ninety-three thousand is like symbolic of his you know, his his vengeance. So
2: this is where M Knight got his idea for sixth cents.
0: Yes, this is exactly <laughs> it. This is yeah. yeah, it's almost a prequel. Except
2: they don't reveal the twist in point blank, which is what makes it a little awkward, but yeah, you know, sixties.
0: Yeah. They didn't know, they didn't spoon-feed spoon it to you in the 60s. You had to no, work for it. <laughs> yeah, you did. <laughs> Some, sometimes you had yep. to work a little too hard. But uh yeah. So, you know, and 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 behind the scenes, you know, this is this is a really cathartic movie for Lee Marvin. That this movie, you can knowing what we've learned about him, this is the movie where he's really and the next one he does with Borman, which is Hell in the Pacific, that he really is working out trying to work out his his dehumanization from his his war experiences and he's trying to find himself. So with that context, now obviously not your general audience isn't going to know that, but for film connoisseurs watching this with that uh through that lens is I think makes this movie I think it makes this movie a lot more interesting and it already already was interesting to begin with, but um Another, you know, aspect that we see going on is is this love triangle between Walker and Lynn and Mal, and it's it's symbolized in a couple of scenes. One is, you know, the scene you mentioned, Brent, where uh, Mal Mal and and Walker grew up together. I think they were like childhood friends, and they had reunited at a, I think like a high school reunion or something is what that scene is and they like tackle each other and they're drunk and mel pulls uh walker to the ground and they're rolling around on top of each other and mel's begging for walker's help and you know there's there's a little more going on to that and then we have a scene and then it goes to this montage of the three of them you know and their life together of of whatever they're scheming and doing together but there's a scene in the car where mal is driving and Lynn's in the middle and walkers in the passenger seat and they're they're taking sunglasses off each other and like moving it to each other's head and that's just another reading between the lines of like what's going on with their relationship right Hmm. how how do you guys feel about that was that that bump you at all or was that did that feel kind of natural to the story
2: I mean, it all seemed a little awkward, but to me, you know, like it's they're 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 trying to portray the what that they had an open relationship. And then at a certain point, like she got more comfortable with the other guy. And that's why all this kind of went down a little bit the way it did. Mm-hmm. But mm. the fact that they introduced that in the movie at all is kind of. I don't know, it's again, like everything every like. I feel like you could introduce that in a current movie and there would be a better way to do it. Like you would just, it would make more sense. Like it leaves a lot of questions. Like it doesn't really, it doesn't really serve the purpose of what it's trying to achieve. I Mm -hmm. don't feel like it just plants a seed and leaves it open and kind of unresolved in a way. And you're like, what the hell is what's,
0: All right, cool. We're gonna now. It's now. It's this. Now this is a thing. Yeah, I I felt like it didn't. It just didn't really fit with this kind of movie, and it's a bit out of nowhere too. Yeah, and it's it's a bit of the you know free love '60s kind of vibe there that is does not exist in this movie. Right. It's just out of nowhere that they go to that level. You know, totally that they're friends, and there's nothing wrong with them having a relationship. It just doesn't. it just doesn't fit for, for me in this film. I agree. Mm-hmm. You know, we go like to see them, the movie is so harsh and violent and to see that really huge contrast, it's almost well, too big of a contrast.
2: Yeah. From what we know about Lee Marvin and John Vernon's character, like characters, they don't seem like the type of guys that would be in that kind of triangle. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Like, it seems mm-hmm. very out of place. Yeah. Um. But, you know, like some other things in this movie, it's sh- kind of shoehorned in. Yeah. And I think that's where I get, like, kind of pulled out, you know?
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, and ultimately, it doesn't last very long, you know, before. Right. You know, that, that's really told in flashback, I- I'm pretty sure.
2: Yeah, it is. Yeah. I mean, all of
0: it is, right? I mean, pretty much... Well, yeah, yeah. It has
2: to be because the movie starts with him rolling around on the ground in Alcatraz,
0: right? Basically, right. So, which is where we have the idea of maybe this isn't, re- maybe this is all a dream, you know? A, a oh yeah, a, absolutely. He's, that's he's where he's it... shot and and dying on the floor of a jail cell in Alcatraz, and <coughs> this is all kind of a fictional part of his.
2: Absolutely, brain. that's why I find that theory like super interesting. And mm-hmm. I think if I were to ever go back and rewatch this, I would absolutely watch it from that perspective and see see if it plays better for me which yeah. i feel like it might because some of the things that i know that i got caught up on i'm like hmm okay if that's what's really happening maybe maybe it works yeah but i don't know to me i think that it's just a grab at trying to make some of the stuff that doesn't work work
0: yeah yeah understandable the uh You know, the other theme of the of the film is betrayal, because that betrayal is like being done left and right and all over the place between all sorts of versions of of these characters. The uh, you know you've got Lynn and Mal turning on on Walker. You've got this whole connection between the the criminal organization with uh, Yost and Fairfax and Brewster. and. They're all sort of turning on each other by the end as well, and then you have Chris turning on Mal, which is Angie, Angie Dickinson turning on on John Vernon later in the movie, or or set up really. Um, and then we've got, earlier in the film we have Carter and the assassin, which is James B. Sicking. You know, Sicking ends up assassinating Carter instead of assassinating Walker. And there's there's a lot of characters, and they're all nobody's truly loyal to each other, which I think was one of the strong points of the movie is that you can't trust anybody and Walker doesn't trust anybody and he uses their own greed uh, against each other. Right. Yeah, and and the, the organization, because that's what it's called, it's called the organization that he was kind of working, very creative name. Very creative. <laughs> uh, you know, they're like, it's a complicated Group that we never really get too many answers. There's some kind of criminal organization that, you know, he is—he's trying to reclaim his ninety-three thousand, and he's going to start with Lynn, and then go to Mel, and then go up the chain until he gets that ninety-three thousand back. He doesn't care who he has to work through. When he um, when he meet when he meets up with Carter, who is. Played by Lloyd Bachner, who is the father of Hart Bachner, who plays Ellis in Die Hard. Um, little trivia there. Huh. Like the whole scene where he where he goes to to Carter, and Carter is basically like, "Well, I like you can't like I, I can't give it to you. You know, it's like a it's like you're in the corporate ladder. You you know, you can't actually get what you want from me. I don't actually handle cash." and but but walker forces you know forces it and forces it and just keeps pushing and pushing and pushing he's like well where do i go who has my money like and he's like legitimately asking that and then it ends up uh, in that great scene in the LA river basin where carter is trying to set up walker to be assassinated by by james sicking and walker is able to re-maneuver it so that carter is the one who runs out and is forced to run out in the open and he's the one who shot and killed
1: he is the smartest man in the world and they don't have to show (laughs) they don't have to show how good he is like he just does it all like you know he's always he's two steps ahead for every situation he's got to like surmount challenges but we don't see him figuring out we i mean we just see the end result of his planning and uh He's not like Mr. Cool about it. He's just doing it because he's just like, he just is like a high speed, violent force, just kind of plowing through every challenge, you know?
0: <laughs> but that's what makes him cool, though. You know, oh, that's, that's like part of the Lee Marvin thing of like why he was so cool at the time.
1: But I mean, like, you know, he's not, sh- it, it's not that, 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 that show off kind of cool you'd see later in the 80s and 90s with yeah. like, Look at how good he is at everything. Oh like, yeah, uh, no, this is just like <clears throat> John Travolta. Is, yeah, like the yeah, Nicholas
0: exactly.
1: <laughs> the uh, so this is like you know, this is your dad just fucking fixing the car on the side of the road in oh, yeah 10 heat with just like a, a a his leather belt and you know a roll of quarters, <laughs> and you're like, oh my god, how did you do that? <laughs> he just does it. He
0: just does it. Like, oh god. So, well, well, that's the thing is that you buy Lee Marvin as this character. You know, he doesn't yeah. have to try very hard to make this believable.
1: Lee Marvin, like the the shape of his face and his features, like this is this is an old school, yeah, man. Right. <laughs> like yeah. This is a this is a Hollywood man. This, yeah. is, this is a man.
2: He's like, like <laughs> tough as nails. Used to chew glass for breakfast. Like. Yeah,
0: and actually did.
2: Had scotch and his cereal.
0: Like I mean, this guy's just intense. he one look at me. He... Are you saying you don't have that?
2: I mean, <laughs> yeah. Until sobriety, but... yeah.
0: Um, yeah. The you know guys like him and Robert Mitchum who were probably considered you know two like in the top five of legit Hollywood tough guys. They did not. They were not handsome traditionally handsome leading men. No, I mean, yeah, they have their own look. And they, and they played into that look and they played those kind of characters. And that was, you know, that was their corner of the market. You know, they're, they're not going to compete with like a Paul Newman and a Steve McQueen in a way, because they, they who have the looks and aren't going to play as the same kind of tough guy that Ali Marvin's going to play.
1: It it always fascinates, fascinates me, like the, you know, the acting profession it, it draws all sorts of types right but it's like you never expect lee marvin to be like i just want to sing and dance yeah, I, know. <laughs> like, I know but he wins yeah. an oscar for that exactly like, right like <laughs> you know or just even like gene kelly who was like a professional baseball player who's on his way and then he becomes a dancer and then he becomes a amazing singer dancer yeah and like what like and, and gene kelly's like he's a, just a man like to me like just a, you know I don't know and so it, it's always funny that there's like so when you have like your Steve McQueen's and your Lee Marvins and 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 stuff like that and it's just like wow these are like these are men and like they're just they want to act and it's like, yeah. like what's drawing them toward but it you know again, it draws all sorts it's, it, acting doesn't belong to any one type of person clearly um, but it's just uh, uh, you know it's easy to fall into stereotypes but when you look at like all well, this old Hollywood stuff like you don't see. Tons of guys that look like this today. Like, you know, they, there are, there are those character guys and there are those manly guys. But no, because like,
0: you got to look good on a poster now.
1: You yeah, know? exactly. So it is like, I don't, I don't know. So I'm just, you know, just yeah, noting.
0: I, I can't think of like, you look at, you know, everybody that's in the Avengers movie, you know, that Marvel movies, like they're all beautiful and attractive people, even when they're made up as aliens or, or whatever. They're, you know, yeah. They're beautiful people so you, you don't have these kind of chiseled really rough looking faces like like a lee marvin anymore
1: but like lee marvin he's got to be what six four like or he just seems like a giant i mean i don't know how tall he is yeah. but like um you know you look at the costumes from like say a marvel movie when you go to the arc light or whatever and they look like these little tiny little costumes and you're like but, uh, like and those yeah. guys are th- those guys are all cut and 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 you know, they look um, like that superhero body, but like they're still like small, I guess, in in the scheme of things, you know. Yeah. But I, don't if, know. I feel I'm like, like a... Lee Marvin would come in and just like pop him one, pop yeah, him right in the like, kisser.
2: I feel like back in the day, tough guys were actually t- tough guys. Yeah. You, you know, like yeah. when they portrayed him they they really were tough as well. It's
0: yeah, I mean, they were like look at look at him. You know, he was yeah. absolutely a tough guy who happened to also be an actor. I mean, like, I still
2: think there's a couple guys out there that do that. Like, I think, I don't know if it's true or not, but I think Jason Statham's probably a pretty tough dude. But sure, yeah. sure. Yeah, no, he's, yeah,
1: he's not a song and dance man.
2: <laughs> no, uh, no, you know, like I'm not trying to take a right hook from Jason Statham.
1: I'm like, all right, guy, you, you got whatever you want, man. You oh, yeah. It. I mean, you can't, you can't, yeah, it's not like all these good looking people today are just pretty boys. You know, there's, there's some tough, Tough people out there, right? I don't know. Yeah. Some of them are just pretty boys, though.
2: But that's fine. Like, they're great. Like, they're, they're, you know, like, dude, they do great work. Like, uh, you know, they're
0: Thespians.
2: If I had to survive, like, a, you know, like a nuclear winter, like, uh, you know, I don't know. Uh, (laughs) Like, uh, Lee Marvin's the guy I want. (laughs) You know, like, I want, I want that dude. He's the guy who had to sit out there on the other side of the line in World War II and, like, make it back you yeah, know, by himself like yeah that's the dude i want
1: well, well like I mean, go, ahead. go ahead david no i was going to say and like but then you hear the story of what he did to andy angie dickinson so he's kind yeah, of I like mean, sure. kind of you know there's the that hard edge where he's you know being a piece of garbage at some point to people that doesn't define him or whatever but like okay that's that's a story you wouldn't hear like chris evans did that too. uh or or any modern any modern actor you know you wouldn't hear those stories of like true visceral danger to oh yeah their no. co-workers you no, know you
0: can't do anything like that you know um, no.
1: w- anyway. rightfully so but like yeah. you end but- up you end up in court like johnny depp and amanda heard yeah <laughs> right so i don't know anyway you were saying john
0: no and, and then you look at lee's career and you know the peak is really 65 to 67 and he really didn't take to the whole hollywood thing he just i don't know if he I don't think he wanted to keep up with it. I don't think he wanted to be a big star, you know, like look at Clint Eastwood who was on the rise at this point um, and McQueen. I don't think he wanted it, the publicity and the nonstop, you know, promotional tours, pushing these movies. I think he wanted to act and he wanted to drink really. (laughs) And you, you look at his career path after this and it's almost, you know, almost a straight kind of downward slide until he eventually passed in was either nineteen eighty seven or eighty nine, uh when oh, he eventually passes. But 80, okay. 87. Yeah. Yeah. The Delta Force was like his last yep. you know, decent level movie. And it he's the very, last it was the last movie he did. Was that the very last one? Yeah. Yeah. Delta and Force he's, in eighty six. He's a I mean, obviously it's almost twenty years after this, but he, he just looks worn out by that point you know he, yeah. he's he's not doing a lot in the delta force he's the commander but he's like he's got like the the he's like the guy talking into the walkie giving orders like you don't right. see him running around knocking people out anymore but
1: the funny thing is Lee Marvin is basically is is our age at the time of filming this movie but he you know was a war 31? veteran 40 40 30 31 Oh yeah right cuz you're 31 <laughs> <laughs> but like he's and a just turned it he's a hard a hardened veteran who drinks and probably smokes like everybody and yeah. so he still looks like like oh that's my dad but like he's literally my like yeah. more or less like right like oh that's my peer i went yeah. to, i would have went to grade school with that guy <laughs> you know like oh crap <laughs>
0: But, you know getting back to to point blank um, the the David you mentioned it earlier the nonlinear storytelling was you know became a tool of the 60s and 70s and then kind of comes back with you know we, we talked about with Tarantino making that such a huge uh, a, a huge storytelling element you know in the 90s but it, it kind of goes away for a while but here we see it we see like, flashes of you know you're watching one scene but it's flashing to others and you're trying to you know really follow that timeline you're, you're going re- sort of reverse order at some points and it's um i didn't i it's not as smoothly done here as it is later with with your pulp fictions and and you know the modern usage of it right, right. Did, did that yeah. kind of bother you guys did it did it just kind of jump jump you out of the movie a little bit
1: Nah. I
2: mean, yeah. I think for me, it's part of, part of the reason I struggled a little bit. I mean, like, I'm used to that kind of nonlinear storytelling, you know, but again, like, this is, I-, I feel like it's kind of unpolished and it's a little dirty and broken, whereas like a lot of the nonlinear storytelling you get these days is very, like, polished and on point. Uh, I mean, at least the movies that I'm seeing, I'm sure there's really bad ones still out mm-hmm. there. And even some of the ones that are supposed to be good, I guess are pretty bad. I think Tenet is one that's we, <laughs> recently come out that was like a little rough for me with this non-linear storytelling. That but, was
0: like, well, it's it's with Nolan it's, it can be overkill.
2: Yeah, but that, that I think just got in its way like it was just a confusing story to try and maintain. Whereas like this one, I feel like just as uh, unpolished in a way that like, it doesn't quite connect the way that it needs to connect for yeah. it really to feel like a succinct story at the end.
1: I think that's the, but that is, it seems that's gotta be the point, right? It's just like, it's nothing. I think you're supposed to either sort of be, uh, like, uh, have some sort of anxiety for what's going on. Like, is he sure? Cause he's this violent guy and he's got his mission, but then like, He's going through some stuff (laughs) at different points and reliving sort of the horrors of his trauma. And, uh, and I, you know, and I don't think it's like, you're not fooled, necessarily fooled by it. Like, oh, here's, here's the trick. You know, Mm -hmm. I think you're meant to just be like, what's going on with this guy? I think it's really supposed to, it's purposely not clean to, to sort of keep you guess, keep you like, I don't know, guessing or keep you sort of, I don't know, not guessing, keep you... Like un- uh, uneasy about what's going on. I don't know.
0: Yeah, it's- and the the big scene where we see it kind of in an intense way is after he, you know, he makes his Walker makes his first real lunge at uh, revenge when he breaks into he's back and he breaks into Lynn's forces his way into Lynn's apartment right and hoping that Mal's there and he just bursts through the door and just goes right into the bedroom and like unloads on the the pillow. Right. And uh, of course, Mal is gone. And then Lynn kind of walks him through, like catches him up of everything he's missed really that Mm -hmm. Mal and her didn't really work out. And she's feeling, you know, she's felt such awful feelings of guilt over turning on, on Walker and she's gotten into drugs and, where it's at least inferred that she's gotten into drugs and, and then she, she overdoses like right there with him. And then we see this passage of time of, we don't really know what he's doing, but each time it cuts around her apartment is more and more bare that I think Brent, you mentioned earlier. I think David,
2: I think David brought that up. David. (laughs) Yeah.
0: Credit to David. Thank Um, you. So, you know, how is like the logic of that, like, you kind of have to just not (laughs) go that way because where did the furniture go? How did he get it? What happened to her body? You know, like, where did it go? I don't think the specific answers really matter that much, but maybe it does. But that that can be something that really bugs somebody watching it is that, you know, you need to have that decisiveness. Uh, Whereas here, it's just more symbolic that he's kind of cleansing and getting rid of his past life and building his plan to move forward and and act, uh, you know, do his acts of vengeance. So,
2: yeah, I think, I think for me, the thing is, is like for any nonlinear kind of storytelling, like eventually you need the connective tissue to be revealed. Right. Mm-hmm. So that it all kind of fits together and, and becomes clear and makes sense. And that's the thing that I feel like, not that this was like so far out there, but like there were just like a little there were so many like pieces left without the connective tissue, no explanation. It's just kind of a little, like, it just seemed very discombobulated, you know, Mm -hmm. just like kind of strewn together in a lot of ways. And, you know, like, I mean, to David's point, I think it's valid. The maybe that adds to the anxiety or angst of, of the viewer, you know, similar to what Lee Marvin is going through you, you assume. And so, You know, I mean, I think that that's that's definitely an interesting way to look at it. But for me, still, like any nonlinear storytelling, you need that connective tissue to kind of pull it all together at the end. And I don't know, like maybe this is just, you know, again, it's earlier filmmaking. It's the 60s, you know, like they're piecing things together still, experimenting with stuff. This seemed very experimental in a lot of ways. Well, And kind of, you know, experimental in a way that like reminded me... And this is not meant to be a dig, but kind of like a student project type thing, you know, like where you're just kind of throwing a lot of stuff at the the wall and like trying to make it interesting. And you have some cool set pieces. But then when you get it finally cut, cut together, like you've got a full you've got a full movie, but you don't have a full story. And it's like, okay, well, it's good. It's, you know, like
0: it still works. Well, so we'll go with it. Remember, this is basically a first time filmmaker. You know right. who has final cut, who has complete creative control. So, yeah, Borman is doing. You know, and, and there were there were. I think Lee Marvin was driving a lot of the creative too. Sure. More from an acting perspective, not necessarily an editorial, but um, right. You know, so you have to factor that in that this is this guy's first real, you know, actual um, scripted film rather than documentary and uh, so yeah so i think that I, I don't i don't think you're off base in saying that that yeah you know uh, so much of uh, you know the even directors that we love their first movie or two f- feel very young you know because yeah they're, they're still they're,
2: they're still learning the craft and figuring out the nuance and right and like the important connective pieces that oftentimes you know is like second Unit stuff that doesn't really get you know across their plate, but you got to think of all of it because at the end, like you need a cohesive piece mm-hmm. to put together, and it just
0: felt like pieces were missing. But yeah, you know, again, yeah. I think
2: there are moments in there that are pretty stellar, but
0: yeah, one moment that I felt was less than stellar that that bumped me was uh, with when he finally confronts Mal. Now, you think you would think traditionally. The confrontation with Mal would be the ultimate, you know, thing that the whole movie builds to at the end, right? But mm-hmm. no, like maybe halfway through the movie, they have their confrontation, and you know, he uses he uses uh, Chris, which is Angie Dickinson, who is Lynn's sister, that he uses her to basically distract Mal while he while uh, Walker gets into the apartment. And they have this scene where, where Mal is, is naked, you know, post-coital with, with Chris and he's wrapped up in a sheet and is pushed over a balcony and the sheet unravels and this really, you know, of its time, <laughs> like what would be a digital shot now of him falling uh, to his death and it's really distract. it's one of those you know old old school films with they trying to do um yeah it was like know. a rear projection yeah like, yeah, yeah. And he's like spinning away from the it just doesn't it just doesn't look right so that was that was an unfortunate moment that took me out but you know for me personally not a lot of moments in this movie is, uh, this movie does that yeah um so yeah and then you know meeting up with carol o'connor and 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 in the in was it he's brewster right yeah he's brewster he's brewster yeah yeah and and his you know rich kind of fancy uh i don't know that's beverly Hills, somewhere in the hills um los angeles home yeah yeah the uh yeah that like that house is so 60s like the wood paint you know I mean it's like pre-80s wood it's kind of wood paneling and the carpet and the just everything is really uh, so 60s it's I, I love it i love that house <laughs> I, w- I just want to move in
2: a lot of the locations are pretty cool like that like it's yeah. just kind of watching through like i've found myself interested in the locations quite a bit
0: yeah and and you know brewster's another character who's you know walker's going up the up the ranks until he gets what he wants and brewster is maybe the top guy but there's also this mysterious Fairfax character that we we don't really see um you know and he's t- trying to talk Walker out of it and it's just a good you know good acting it, it, where where Walker is just like so he's like but I I want my money like I don't I don't care somebody's got somebody's got my money who's going right. to give it to me like the way Lee Marvin performs in that scene is just i think just total genius
2: yeah it's threaten a financial structure like this for ninety three thousand dollars no walker i don't believe you what do you really want i really want my money and then, one of my favorite one of my favorite scenes in this movie is the i forget the character's name now damn it um it's the car salesman
0: oh yeah yeah yeah, uh, look, that, yeah. that
2: scene i really enjoyed where he's just like Tortures ramming with the car the, yeah, ramming <laughs> the car into you the the pylons of the of the uh overpass. That's probably the the
0: that what he's doing is it's probably below the 6th street bridge yeah oh yeah which, absolutely which just got re you know rebuilt it, it was torn down and rebuilt and it's already been shut down again because oh really yeah there's like a lot of riffraff happening on it so yeah uh, i
2: saw i saw a bunch of clips the other day with i mean there's like people jumping out and walking
0: yeah, like racing like and yeah, yeah, there's all
2: sorts of stuff happening.
0: There. Yeah, but the Sixth Street Bridge is a super famous shooting location in, in LA, and it's like that picturesque over the LA River, yeah. Um, you know, right there. And it was, I, like I've, I've shot there so many times, but um, anyway, yeah, uh, but the car salesman that was, uh, <laughs> yeah, I love that just scene. beats him, you know, beats him up via you know, car crashing over and over yeah. and over,
2: yeah, and he's like. He's putting his seatbelt on the car he's
1: like oh yeah you won't need that yeah. like <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I love it. It's uh, the uh real quick cuz you guys would know this on uh the L.A. River basin where that 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 place where he comes out and which we've seen in countless shows I'm assuming that's like the one place anyone anyone's allowed to shoot more or less like there's no better visual it's, and it's probably logistical yeah place it's,
0: right it, it's the easiest to film at because it's the most picturesque. There's plenty of parking right in that spot. Like there just happens to be, you know, good places to put your trucks and your, you know, your crew parking. And there's just a lot of convenient like warehouse type buildings that Mm. you can, you can use. And then and you're also like, nobody drives through there. So you have it completely to yourself. It's very private.
1: Huh. Yeah, it's I mean, I've seen, you know, so so many times that long tunnel and just where it spills out and it's you see the other bridges and yeah, and I'm like, oh my god, like, I get it. It's iconic. um But it's always the same. It's the same location. It's like you can't hide it that it's like a different part of the LA River. <laughs> well, and they
0: had to tear that bridge down because it 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 actually the concrete. I forget what oh. the name of it is, but the concrete actually got like a disease. Oh really? Like there was like a fungus type thing that got into the concrete, and the concrete was wearing away. Oh, oh really? Oh, so wow. they, which which is it's a real thing. I so don't they know they like had to. I mean, that was a big inconvenience to take that bridge down and then rebuild it. But but they they really didn't have a choice. It wasn't safe anymore.
1: So. Right, right. Wow. Uh, well, hmm. uh, well, always pay for good inspectors, everybody.
0: Yeah, yeah. yeah. You
1: know, if, you, if we're taking one lesson away from that's that's the one pay for inspector (laughs)
0: um and then you know by the end of the film we are back at alcatraz and the rock rock. yeah the rock welcome to the rock uh so we're back there and brewster reveals that that keenan Wynn's character who is named yost who was sort of guiding He was a mysterious character who was sort of guiding Walker and and helping him along the way. Uh, He's revealed as actually being Fairfax. So he's the head of the organization who's basically using Walker. That's the reveal is that he's using Walker as a way to get rid of all the guys underneath him who have any kind of claim on his throne. So he can take full control of the organization. Yeah,
1: it's pretty cool. Like,
0: it's a cool reveal, right? Yeah.
1: I really like yeah, the like you know, seeing this movie for the first time, I'm like, ooh, that was that's great. This guy's a genius.
0: <laughs> and it all it comes paradox. it all comes together where it started. So mm-hmm. you've got your the symbolic ending of that he's back in this tomb mm-hmm. and he's come to get his that's where he's finally gonna get his money. But where it ends, it's ambiguous that does he get it? Like the last time we see Walker, he's just like Brewster has been shot and reveals that Yost is actually Fairfax, and Fairfax kind of, you know, does the villain thing of explaining the plan, and we just see Walker kind of fade back into the into the darkness, and the money's still out there, and that's that's it. We don't know what happens after that.
1: Yeah, maybe off screen, Walker fades into nothing he's a ghost right and maybe that means that would mean fairfax is like a guardian angel or the holy spirit or or jesus christ maybe i don't know yeah any of these are valid theories
0: yeah and that his if if he is a ghost you know there was no vengeance to be had he was being used by
1: by the lord
0: by yes (laughs) <laughs>
2: um, right. so, but know, at the beginning of the movie we said we thought he was living wait right. so that's, well, the that's thing. i'm
0: just saying if that's if that's the way you want to yeah. go if you want to go yeah, living sure. then logistically like what happens does 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 he get the money how does he get off the island how does he get off alcatraz this time wow. he's well, gonna swim he get... again
2: i mean he got off alcatraz before and
1: he was shot Hot. so he he's no problem yeah well i mean that's the thing it... Did he ever leave Alcatraz? But no, like I mean, if they took a boat together, there should be a boat for him to take it True. To, yeah, yeah. with Brewster. Yeah. Um, it doesn't really matter, but it's like you know, there should be a way off this time. I'll just but wait for the next tour
2: guide and just
1: hop on the yeah, hop on that try to blend in, in the in the morning, just be like we see we see him in post credits in bermuda shorts and like a and like a cargo yeah. shirt and like fedora you know, like a straw fedora yeah and he's got a he's got a photo, he's got a camera and like and like a pennant that says go alcatraz <laughs> and he's like he's just a tourist <laughs> he adopts a southern accent and like you know he's or an out of state accent like All right you know like,
0: <laughs> you know, so the the best the best tour guide I've ever seen for Alcatraz is definitely Phil Hartman from So I Married an Axe Murderer. Oh definitely. Yeah. Great. I don't great, know, I don't, great scene.
1: I don't remember that scene. I did yeah, see man. that movie back in ninety four or whatever, yeah. but
0: uh that's I don't remember that. We get a i need to watch that movie again yeah man i miss that guy oh phil hartman let's let's, we would do a side cast about phil but i
1: i cried in in may of 1998
0: oh i was sad yeah i i was driving when i found out and i I had to pull over and it was just awful, awful i was
1: dying him
2: and robin williams man both of those when i got the when when the news came through i was like shit dude yeah that's yeah fucking bummer
0: um, you know, and and breaking news while while we're just talking about actors that have passed. That I feel like we've been talking so much about actors that have passed. Yeah, with with our Ray Liotta episode and Goodfellas and James Caan and Rollerball. But we found out as we record this today that uh, Nichelle Nichols had passed, who was Uhura and and in uh, Star Trek and Paul Sorvino had passed uh, last week also from Goodfellas. David Warner from The Omen passed away. Mm -hmm. Just it feels like every day there's there's people going and, um, you know, uh, RIP to all of them. And we'll we'll try to work all of them into the show if we haven't already. So anyway, that has nothing to do with Point Blank. But um, yeah, I I really love that ending. I I like you guys know me and, and how much I like those dark kind of endings of the seventies. And I think this is, this is one of those that it's ambiguous. Like what happens next? If does he get the money, does he get away? It's sort of like the money doesn't represent now what he thought it did. So mm-hmm. is it worth anything to him? Cause it's really not about the money. Like it's about what was, it's about it being his property. Right. So, uh so I don't know who knows what happens next, but, you know, there were 23 other novels that happened, none of which I've read. And there's a bunch of other films uh, that have used this character, but none of them are straight sequels to each other. They're all either retellings of the same the same story or other based on other books in the series. But it's never been an actual true film series. Right. Would have been interesting if, uh, you know, they carried it on like a... like. What Dirty Harry did for Clint Eastwood, I wonder if they had made more of these. If Lee Marvin would have had that kind of reputation for the Walker character, mm. would have been interesting. But um, you know, Lee is like—I can't think of anybody better, other than maybe Robert Mitchum, to play this character. I think perfect casting for him.
2: Mm-hmm. Agreed. Yeah, he was great. I mean, he was—he was. He was... His performance is I think the strongest in the in the movie. I mean, they're all pretty good, but Lee Lee was great.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, we're with him ninety-five percent of the time and, and yeah. You know, his animalistic, like single minded intensity is just so I, I don't know, it's just like I'm I was I was sucked up in, in his character in particular and just like how how intense is he going to be, and how aggressive is this guy going to get till he gets what he wants? Yeah. All right. Well, let's talk a little. I think it's time to talk a little box office glory. Hmm. Now, as we've talked about many times in this pre like nineteen pre Star Wars, we really box office wasn't really tracked the same way as it's been now, and there's not a lot of uh, you know hard information out there to, to find, but uh, but basically uh, the film had a 2.5 million dollar budget. It grossed it grossed nine million. So that's hey. not a crazy hit, but it's definitely a movie that made money and was a success. So yeah. um, so that's a win. It uh, it's more than ninety three thousand. Exactly. So yeah, <laughs> Lee's happy. Lee's happy. Uh, it comes out august 30th 1967 the top of the box office for 1967 was uh the graduate uh and the jungle book oh wow so this probably is probably in the top maybe top 20 top 25 dollar wise but uh yeah not 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 at the at the very tip top of it
1: um was there an animated series developed after this? Uh, this Point movie? blank,
0: the animated series. Yeah, I, th- I feel there, like they there, there was, should have been. It was it was, sure. called, it was called Archer. <laughs> yeah. There you go.
1: That's a <laughs> that plays. I, I would love to see Walker with like an animated like turtle and wisecracking and <laughs> muskrat or something. You know, hanging out and going like, to get river. Taking cases, like a revenge. rocket
0: raccoon kind of sidekick, yeah. yeah,
1: yeah, and or it's like, or it's Walker in high school, like it's a prequel. <laughs> yeah,
0: <laughs>
1: they, can yeah. Have, uh, they can have uh, uh, Michael Bell play play wow. Walker in the animated yeah. series. He's got uh, Mike, uh, you gotta like Duke's oh, yeah. voice,
0: that's a good voice, love that guy. Um, we did see, so, you know, other actors, Robert Duvall has played this character. I think the movie was called The Organization um, hmm. in the kind of late part of the 70s. Um, you know, not as, I actually haven't seen that, so I can't really speak to it, but <clears throat> probably the most well-known uh, retelling of the Walker story is the 1999 Brian Helgeland, Mel Gibson film, Payback. Ooh. Ooh. Which that right? I, I, re- I saw Payback in the theater. I remember liking it, but I have since seen people just hate on that movie and just go on and on about how awful it is. But seeing Point Blank, which I saw afterwards, you know, they're very similar. So uh, I, I, I should check out Payback again sometime and see how it holds up and how it compares really to Point Blank. I remember the buzz
1: about it because it was like, oh, Mel Gibson's playing essentially a bad guy who who just murders and rips shit up, right? Yeah. Like, wasn't that like the big the idea? Like, it's really
0: the same. It's the same plot as this one.
1: Yeah, but I think they were like hinging on it's like, well, Mel Gibson's yeah. not. He's now like a straight up bad guy in a sense because he's just you know on a vengeance vengeance uh, crusade. But yeah, uh, so I think they were like you know you're used to him being the comedic hero these last these last 6 years to, or whatever and then uh anyway i am kind of interested to go see that i wanted i remember wanting to see payback back then but yeah i was banned uh, I, I was banned from my local
0: theater so i couldn't, I couldn't you were, you got into <laughs> trouble at the theater i
1: got a lot of trouble the year before I, I forget what i i saw a movie there in in 98 what was that cuffs maybe is that 94 that to be cuffs <laughs> <laughs> With I mean, the, I'm sure the, I've seen
2: Payback, but like, I it doesn't look familiar. I
1: know that I'm, poster. I know that back and yeah, forth,
0: the uh, John Borman said <clears throat> after he saw Payback that he said, "Oh, they must have found the script that Lee threw out the window." <laughs>
1: <laughs> holy crap that's hilarious that's really
0: good that's yeah. a really good burn <laughs> yeah that's
1: that's pretty good i
0: like that one yeah uh, uh so i don't know you know as a re- like i'm a big revenge movie fan and oh. to me like the this is probably my favorite revenge movie just off the top of my head um i don't know i i i just i just i really enjoy this film um it's sixties-ness and it's non-linear kind of issues and, and how it's aged, uh, aside, I still, I still have a good time with this movie. I, it's, it's peak Lee Marvin. And that's probably why I like it so much that yeah, this is, if, if you're a Lee Marvin fan, if you like him in the dirty dozen and you like him in, and you know, the other films that he did, like you, you have to, you have to at least see this movie. Um, if not, you're probably, you know, you're probably going to enjoy it just for his own performance.
1: Okay,
2: that's fair. Yeah,
1: yeah, I get that.
2: I myself feel differently. I feel like this is not even the best revenge movie we've done a podcast on.
0: Well, oh. go, shoot, shoot, go for it. What? What? No, what I if?
2: like I like Rolling Thunder more than yep. I like this movie. Yeah, but,
0: yeah, for sure. Yeah,
2: but uh, just from the from our from our recording sessions, but uh
0: which by the way if you haven't heard it check it out in the archives www.reconcinemation.com forward slash rolling thunder i don't know, I don't think sure. I don't know about that part. or just
2: but. or just <laughs> find the link in there and click yeah. on it yeah uh yeah no i i think for Reve- as far as revenge movies go like i liked rolling thunder more than i like this but i totally understand the draw for this but for kind of all the reasons that I was stating earlier like this one just doesn't
1: connect with me as much uh, since I can't think of any other revenge movies I'll probably just say I think I like this more than Rolling Thunder
0: what about What about Hard to Kill? Steven Seagal I mean where do you or, rank or, I mean, that?
1: That's, that's pretty dope or
0: the John Wick trilogy I mean if we're just oh, going to throw revenge movies out there David loves his John Wick I know he does he loves it so much
1: <laughs> I'm a freak. It, I should love it, and I don't. Yeah, it's it your You're. I should love it. That's right in my alley. On paper. Yeah, your 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 severe dislike for it is interesting to me. But it. It's really you weird. don't have to. You don't have to love it. No, I, I don't. Do. You know, I don't really <laughs> care that I don't like it. I'm just. It's it's probably my biggest movie-going surprise. Have you seen all of them or just the first one? I got through th- like almost 3 quarters of the first one and I'm like I can't watch this anymore. This is oh, this doesn't wow. interest me.
2: Okay.
0: Well yeah. yeah. And we mentioned the Wraith, so maybe that's the greatest revenge movie. I want to get on wraith. that. Yeah. I just want to watch like, Charlie Sheen movies actually. So. Yeah. You, you need David Needs the Machine.
1: I, I need the machine. I want to watch The Arrival, that alien yeah, comes to Earth. You movie. That's pretty oh. dope.
0: A little men at work,
1: men at work. I think that was on HBO this month. Yeah, dude, a Sheenathon. Time.
0: Too
2: bad there's not some catchy way we can twist a month into Martin Sheen.
1: We'll work on it. We'll, we'll work we'll on it. Yeah, we'll have to. We'll take out recommendations. A, 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 Anybody a, have
2: any recommendations? Just hit us up in the machine, in the comments. Machine May. Machine May well,
1: machine, maybe. Sheen Timber. <laughs> And then maybe get Gene a little Trevor. terminal
0: velocity in there
1: <laughs>
0: yeah anyway charlie um,
1: christmas Char- yeah. charlie De- uh I can't,
0: yeah well we'll split ball well yeah this is going to take the whole committee getting she
2: knew <laughs> yeah. that might be the best one yeah there we go
0: oh god yeah but <laughs> the wraith will be in there so um yeah i don't know uh well yeah. Interesting. Interesting take on a, on a revenge film. So, you know, obviously we, we voiced our uh, discrepancies of what we think is our, yeah. our personal favorites. But um, yeah, yeah. overall, I mean, do you think how do you think it holds up today, though? You know, we we, we talked a bit about. You know, that 60s style and, and it can be a hard pill to swallow for modern audience. I did try to watch this with my I use my kids as my older kids as, as the barometer for the for a lot of the movies we watch. And we were about halfway through and I could tell like they were struggling, <laughs> like struggling. You're just doing me a favor by sitting here and watching it, aren't you? And yeah. then something they, they had to actually do something. So they they bailed out halfway through, but they were like, thank God that thing came up and they're like
1: mom you want us to regrout the shower yeah
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah i can i you know i mean yeah I, I get i get the disinterest from a the younger generation yeah uh, i think artistically though i i enjoy this a lot more than i expected to you know but i, I but i think it's a solid i think it's pretty solid in, in terms of what what it purports to be mm. and uh and i like that it's a little it that 60s it's a little weird it you know there's this weird like slightly weird elements and not everything i think I, you know the thing i didn't like was in the he ended up sleeping with chris at the yeah and i was just like ah, damn it like it would have been because it looked like she's doing psychological warfare on him in the kitchen and talking through the the intercom she is messing with him because she fundamentally doesn't agree with what he's doing and like i just i was like this is this is great like i really like that because it's 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 more him you know knowing that he's gone through all this trauma like she's hitting him the way that she probably didn't even know how effective that was you know to like come and get him and uh but then it's like you know and then they're they're physically fighting each other and then and she, you know, she knocks him out or, you know, almost cusses him. And then, yeah. and then of course, like, because they're like so close together, like now they have to
0: start kissing and then move to the bedroom. And I was like,
1: Oh, that's the like, right. darn, yeah.
0: darn. Yeah. I agree. That could have, would have been better without that.
1: Yeah. She could have stayed with him or whatever. Cause then she's not in the story. Once it's like, here's what you're going to do. She's gone like that. You know, I was like, Oh, of course he ends up with her. Like, you know. Eh. but you know it's very 60s for that kind of shit but, yeah yeah um, women are women are props and tools and <laughs> yeah. and objects of desire and whatever um but so yeah the the you know i loved that psychological warfare that 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 chris put on him i thought mm-hmm. that i thought that was really cool
0: yeah, the, the the use of women in the film is is not good like that. That is yeah. an element that has aged poorly. I mean, she's Chris especially is almost used entirely as a sexual device. You know mm-hmm. that he so Chris was sisters with Lynn, who is now dead, that Mal has a, now has a crush on Chris, not a crush. But, you know, he wants Chris. So Walker uses Chris to sleep with mal as a distraction so he can get in there which he does and then she's angry at him but then of course falls for him so you know not the best that's a great moment where she's completely messing with him psychologically and physically yeah but then it ends with you know then they sleep together and it just would have been stronger without that but yeah you know it's a product of its time
1: yeah and i mean sometimes you can't deny the heat between two people (laughs) yeah. <laughs> but you know it is just sort of classic of, of 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 that kind of era like yeah beautiful woman rugged sexy guy whatever they're good inevitably they're gonna end up together yeah um, uh, anyway but uh so you know yeah you know the first time you uh and then also like at, at the car lot like it the, there's just a joke of like the set the sort of the sexy bombshell trying to buy a car. Yep. Stegman, oh, yeah. Stegman can't keep his eyes off
0: Or Yeah,
1: what do you? What kind of car are you looking for, a friend? And he's just staring. Like, yeah,
0: what it's you, so what, silly. what? Are you in high
1: school? <laughs> like, yeah. you can't, I don't know. It's just silly. Like, uh, I don't know. But you know, but we all we all roll our eyes at that kind of silliness of that time. And and um, you know, but other than that, I think the rest of the movie holds up pretty well.
0: Yeah. Uh, well, you know, and a great team up between, you know, Borman and Lee Marvin that, that was uh beginning of a long friendship. And and clearly they had a rhythm here and it continues in their next film, which they go right into called Hell in the Pacific, which is about a U.S. soldier and a Japanese soldier who are stuck on an island together, they both crash on an island and are stuck there together. And it's about their relationship with each other. Um, you know, another definitely another uh, cathartic movie for Lee Marvin, processing his war experiences, but um, which I don't know if ultimately he really ever did. Uh, this movie in particular had a huge influence on Steven Soderbergh, that he refers to Point Blank as a crucial film in his upbringing. That he, in most of his movies, he does he says he does something that harkens back to Point Blank. And I think you can Hmm. see a lot of it in the Limey, um, which I haven't seen in a long time. I need to rewatch, but uh, there's definitely parts of that that uh, call back to to, uh, Point Blank. So, you know, interesting that such a, you know, huge filmmaker now has had, uh, it feels like his roots are partially based in Point Blank.
1: Yeah, that's pretty neat.
0: So it does, you know, and in, in some de- to some degree, you know, it's it's uh, had an impact and uh, impact and and lasted uh, over time.
1: Well, th- you know, who knows what kind of movies we'd have if not for pa- Point Blank?
0: Apparently, we wouldn't have any Soderbergh films. That's it. <laughs> he would have
1: just a- become a carpenter.
0: Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, but no, this was. Uh, I'm glad we this I'm glad we got to look at this one. This one has been on my my list for a really long time and uh you know we we scheduled this this uh, month long vacation in Alcatraz uh, for this August so we figured this is the perfect time to to take a look at point blank and and there's a whole slew of movies that we could uh you know cover for our next episode but uh, I'm just gonna let it linger there as a tease and very soon we will uh we'll have our next edition of alcatraz august so um what do you guys think any other any other notes on point blank or anything alcatraz related you got your sleeping bags yeah we're we're, we're gonna be there for a month Ready? so it's gonna be it's gonna be a long month i'm pretty excited
2: i do i do love myself some some Alcatraz lore. So this is gonna be an awesome month, guys.
0: We're doing the swimming challenge to Alcatraz, a month in Alcatraz, and then swim out.
2: Yeah. So. I'm gonna I'm gonna it's I brought a wetsuit because it's gonna be real cold. <laughs> and
1: so then so after, I'm ready. And after that we'll see where all the dogs go. When they <sighs> some where do they go? They go to places. That's just a hint. <laughs>
2: I'm not saying what the movie is. That sounds like a red herring, but okay. It's all dogs
0: go to heaven. That's what we're doing. Oh well, geez, you know, now
1: that you said that, we can't do it.
0: No, I guess we can't do that. You
1: spoiled it. So, Uh,
0: but what about?
1: uh, Do they go to heaven too? As well, let's just do. Do they go? They go to heaven also.
0: (laughs) Oh God! All right. Well, uh, great, uh, great being back here with you guys, and uh, looking forward to our next episode you want to catch any of our shows in our archives or at Reconcinimation.com or check us out on social media or at Reconcinimation podcast on instagram and twitter uh thank you to our friends ek wimmer for the poster or ek wimmer for the theme music and curtis moore for the poster i guess we will see you guys next time on Reconcinimation. take care bye now
2: You should have killed him. You owed it to yourself.
0: This money belonged to Sister. You better take it.
2: You died at Alcatraz, all right.
0: Goodbye, Walker.
1: Bam, down. out, bing.